Hello, welcome to the Double Double, Episode 8. My name is Kelly Hogan, I'm joined by David Dixon. David, how's it being back in Brooklyn? It's doing great, a little spring break podcast action. It's going to be better. There we go. So if you guys could, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. If you want, you can leave us an email as well, double double four zero two at gmail.com. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about LeBron eclipsing Michael Jordan in scoring and what that means, if anything. I have a Zion thought that I want to hear David's perspective on. And we're going to start with a little NBA talk. So the playoffs start about a month from this weekend. So we each came up with three things that we're keeping an eye on down the home stretch here. So, David, you go first. What's your, what's your first thing you're kind of keeping tabs on as we round out the NBA season? Yeah, so the first thing that I'm really interested in, just keeping a tab on with this about a month ago, is the Celtics and their team chemistry. Because they are in a really tough spot where Kyrie seemingly is one foot in, one foot out. They're struggling. They're fifth in the East when everyone thought that they would be, you know, probably the favorites in the East coming into the season to make the finals. And they're really struggling. And it seems like their struggles are mainly from a chemistry perspective. You have all these guys coming out and saying that they're not really clicking, different things about their chemistry. So so I'm really looking as to see if if they can figure it out in this last month to go on a run in the playoffs. Because if the season ended today, they'd have to play Philly in the first round and they'd be the five seed. And I'm not sure if they would win that series. Yeah, I think that would definitely be a tough series. And if they can, and they're definitely trying to avoid that and get up into the three so they can face possibly Brooklyn in the first round, the Nets, who would definitely be an easier matchup for them than the Sixers. Oh, yeah. And also by by getting up into the three, you avoid Milwaukee in round two, which would be huge. Yeah. The crazy thing is that they're not that far behind, and we're going to talk about the team that's ahead of them in a little bit. But it seems like their issues aren't, like someone is injured, they're waiting for a guy to come back from injury or just some bad luck or just the East is really good. It just They just don't get along very well. So they win games by a lot when everything clicks and you see the, all the potential. And then they have these stretches in games where you just wonder, you know, do these guys talk to each other when the game is over? Right. And I was reading something earlier this morning, actually. Terry Rozier was saying, he was asked something along the lines of why do you guys play so well against Golden State? And he said, Kyrie's our best player. He was engaged in a good mood and it kind of feeds off onto everyone else. And that's kind of implying that Kyrie's been acting a little um, pissed off, I guess, recently. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hadn't heard that Rogier quote since, since you said it, but that is really fascinating to me because it seems like the guy's the, like the weirdest thing about this, this situation to me is just how everyone is so open about how they aren't meshing. Because I feel like you know these guys are pros; they give the trained response. But these guys are being so open about, yeah, you know, when Kyrie's in a good mood, like like not even like something you know he was playing well, but like literally Ky- Kyrie woke up that day and was in a good mood. That like that's when we're good. So. And they, they can get along. It just it just feels like they're so fragile as a unit that just like one guy being in a bad mood can ruin the whole team. 
Yeah, and speaking of another guy on the team, the first guy I wanted to talk about, Jason Tatum. I think we both be in, in agreement in that he's viewed as kind of the trump card for the Celtics in the Anthony Davis sweepstakes. If they put him on the table, the perception is there's not really a better deal out there that any other team can throw at the Pelicans and entice them to get AD. I think that's that's kind of the perception that Tatum is that dude. Would you agree with that? Yep, for sure. And he's he's kind of viewed as a better long-term prospect than Brandon Ingram. And unfortunately, Brandon Ingram's obviously done for the season, as we saw today. But he's really taken a leap. And I'm not certain that it's so definitive that Jason Tatum is clearly the better prospect. If you just look since February 1st, Jason Tatum's putting up 15 points a game, six boards, and two assists on 46% shooting from the field, 39% from three. Brandon Ingram is at 23 points per game, six rebounds and three assists on 52% from the field and 42% from three. So I'm not ready to say that Brandon Ingram is a, is a better prospect or a more attractable asset in a trade for Anthony Davis. But I think Jason Tatum has a lot to prove over the next month or so. If you're looking at this from the Pelicans' perspective, because assuming Ingram has kind of turned a corner and unfortunately we're not gonna be able to see it for the rest of the season, but he's left a seed in, in the mind of those who follow the NBA that he may have taken a leap. I'm not certain that a package containing Tatum and a couple of Boston assets is superior to Ingram, Lonzo, Kuzma, and now a lottery pick that's becoming more and more attractive. Yeah, I mean, you're. I, I think you're totally right on this one. And it's going to be really interesting going forward because this is just another wrinkle for the Lakers and how to build their team. Uh, if Ingram, because this is the same type of injury with the blood class that Chris Bosh had. So it's kind of his, like his future is now really in jeopardy because you don't want to mess around with blood class because that, that could be a fatal uh, health condition when not treated correctly. But I'm right there with you that Ingram was playing really well the last three weeks or so. It seemed like he understood what LeBron was saying when, hey, we got to make a playoff push if basketball's not the most important thing in your life right now or whatever LeBron said. Ingram was like, yeah, man. Like, like, let's go make the playoffs. But, you know, and it seems like Ingram has been able to respond more positively to all the, because every NBA season has adversity for all these teams. It feels like Ingram was able to handle the, the adversity in L.A. a lot more than Tatum was in Boston, which I think is really interesting because whoever's going to be that centerpiece going into New Orleans, it's not going to be all perfect all the time down there it's going to be a rebuilding and a lot of losses probably early on right and another comparison that hasn't been thrown around recently because of the success that ben simmons has had is the ingram simmons comparison because they went one two in that draft and because of simmons early success people kind of just shoot him in as oh he was clearly the right choice and this is not to say that brandon ingram is better than Ben Simmons or will be better than Ben Simmons. But that window, a possibility, I think is still there. I think Brandon Ingram, he's only six months older than Jason Tatum. Yeah. So he's still very young. And this idea that the Lakers don't have the juice to get a, an AD deal done, I think is a little foolish. And I think the 
what Jason Tatum shows over the next month and then into the playoffs will be very telling as to what deal New Orleans front office finds most enticing. Yeah, I mean, Tatum's a really interesting case of recency bias because we're talking about right now, Tatum's not that impressive. But it was only last year that he was dominating the playoffs and and taking it to LeBron and dunking on him. So I think you're 100% right is that if, if Tatum's able to go in the postseason and for however long the Celtics are in the playoffs, he puts on a show like he did last year, then the, the narrative completely changes on him and the future negotiations with, with New Orleans. So the next thing I wanted to bring up, the next team I'm watching for the remainder of the regular season, I'm watching the Pistons very closely. Interesting. Since February 1st, they are 11-3. and That's the best mark in the NBA. And Blake Griffin, people don't really notice it because he's, I don't know if it's because he's playing in Detroit or what, what the deal is. But he's really transformed his game. He's shooting 36% from three on nearly seven attempts per game. In his mm-hmm. Clipper days, he never shot more than two threes per game. So he's almost quadrupled his three-point attempts since he's gotten to Detroit on a per-game average. And I think that's allowed he and Andre Drummond to really coexist and not clog the floor and has given them options if you will and Dwayne Casey's done a really good job implementing kind of his Toronto principles into Detroit and they've had success definitely of late but the guy I'm really keeping an eye on is Luke Kennard he was picked 12th 12th overall last year and he definitely struggled prolific scorer in high school Duke as well in March he's played four games he's averaging over 22 points per game that's really significant progress for him and a key for Detroit moving forward if they want any chance to make a scare or or cause some fear into the likes of Toronto or Philly or Boston in the first round. And I'm just seeing if, if their play is sustainable. And if, I mean, do you think in the first round they could give one of those teams a hard-fought series? Oh, yeah, for sure. They could. They could definitely give someone a challenge because they have an all-star in Blake Griffin who's playing really, really well. Drummond, can he's a unique player where you feel like he could bother some teams that don't have great size. And uh, as you're saying, they have these role guys who are blossoming. When you're talking about Kennard, it reminds me a lot of what we were talking about on a previous podcast uh, with Malik Beasley in uh, in Denver about these guys who come into the NBA and it takes them a little bit to figure out what their role is and get accustomed to playing in, in the league and how to be successful and Kennard fits that same model where really touted prospect but struggled early on and kind of everyone just forgot about him and said oh he stinks like he can't play but then it's like no these guys keep working they're professionals and then they just keep you know they just keep at it, and they carve out a role where now it seems like Kennard is carving out a role in the rotation for next season and maybe even many more to come in Detroit. For sure. And I know a team you wanted to talk about uh, was the Pacers. Yeah, so my so this is kind of just a – they are third in the East right now. They're 10-9 and nine without since, since Oladipo went down with their injury. The Sixers – are like a half game 
behind, and the Celtics are like a game behind from them in the playoffs. So they're really close. Can they keep up the pace and finish in the top four? These guys are kind of your team, so I kind of want to get your opinion on the Pacers because I don't think they will. And uh, I think they'll drop down to five, but I just want to see if you think that they could keep it up. Well, I was thinking about this recently. What do you think about this comparison? I think they're the Eastern Conference version, and albeit a better version in terms of where they sit in the standings, but of the Clippers. Just a collection of guys. They don't really have that superstar, but they have a bunch of dudes who are consistent and contribute on a nightly basis, and kind of the sum of the whole is greater than that of its parts. They have a huge game tomorrow against Philly. Right now, as you said, they're just ahead of Philly in the standings. And that game, if they can win that game and get two, a, two games up on Philly, I think that'd be huge with just about 15 games left. And if they, if they were to drop that one and Philly is then pulled even, I think suddenly they have the momentum. And that's, that's a tough, tough situation for, for the Pacers. Yeah, because it's really interesting because I think we both agree that probably in a playoff series that they'll probably lose in the first round to no matter who they play. But the best chance for them to advance is to play a team like Brooklyn in the first round and not have to play Boston or Philly in that first round. Right. I think if they were to play Brooklyn, I think that's a series they would win. I think it'd be competitive. But like like you said, if they were to face any of the four perceived top dogs in the Eastern Conference, I think... That that series is going six games max, and they're playing golf down in the Bahamas the next week because they're not winning that. The next team I wanted to talk about was the Charlotte Hornets and how it relates to Kemba Walker and his future as it ties into the rest of the season. So obviously his free agency is looming. It's kind of been the elephant in the room in Charlotte for probably about a year and a half now. And the Hornets are fighting with Orlando and Miami for the eighth seed. So they're just scratching and clawing to make the playoffs. Money and loyalty, I think, will play a role as it does with all players when it comes to either resigning or deciding to go elsewhere. And just for some context, if Kemba were to stay with Charlotte, he'd be eligible for a five-year, $192 million contract. And if he were to go elsewhere, he's eligible for a four-year, $147 million contract. So basically, he's it's an extra year, and an additional $45 million is what he's allowed if he stays in Charlotte. But I think his decision, honestly, might be as simple as if they make the playoffs, he stays. And if they don't, he leaves. If, if they were to miss the playoffs this season, it'd be the third straight year that the Hornets missed the postseason. And they will have only have made the postseason in two of the past eight. And, it, you know, if I were betting right now, I would bet that they don't make the playoffs in large part because their schedule is daunting. They have set, they have 17 games left. And just listen to this. These are just some of the games they play of the 17. Milwaukee, Houston, Philly, Toronto twice, Boston, San Antonio, Golden State, Utah, Detroit. That's a lot of losses. I think Kemba is a really interesting case because he was a three-year guy in college. He's only played for Charlotte in his NBA career, right? So he 
the money and the loyalty, I think, will be a huge impact on him. I think that the big elephant is that he's from New York City. And if the Knicks strike out on Kyrie Irving, does Kemba Slow play his free agency and see what the Knicks are going to offer him to come the idea of coming back home? I have no idea if he even wants to play in New York uh, because he kind of flourished in Charlotte playing, you know, scoring 25 a game this year, being an all-star. I feel like he's going to slow play his, his, his free agency until he sees what the Knicks and Irving does. I totally agree with you when it makes all the sense in the world for him to slow play it because at the end of the day, the Hornets don't have any other options. Kemba Walker is the one with the options here. So we can kind of go out, test the market, see what these other guys do, and then come back on July 8th and be like, I want to re-up and I want to commit long-term to the Charlotte Hornets. And Jordan will be like, great, we'd love to have you because they don't have any other options. And it's also because they don't, they, don't they don't have any other options because they've missed on a lot of their lottery picks. When you were saying that, that, that they missed the playoffs a bunch of times in the last eight years, they've really missed on a lot of their, their picks. You know, Malik Monk is still figuring it out. Kid Gilchrist is figuring is you know he's not really figuring it out. He just is what he is. They missed on Kaminsky at that pick. Dwayne Bacon's figuring it out. Like just going through their their roster is just guys who are probably not the type of production out of the lottery. Cody Zeller comes to mind too. You know, so they really need to to get one of those gems in the middle of the lottery to I think to incentivize Kemba to stay. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think the disparity between the Eastern and Western Conference is pretty, you know, well known. And it's a topic that a lot of people speak to. And just the fact that Charlotte is still in contention for a playoff spot in the East, along with the teams I mentioned earlier, like Orlando and Miami. If you took the teams from the bottom of the Western Conference, you know, New Orleans or Dallas or or teams of that ilk, are we even sure that Charlotte is better than them? They're fighting an uphill battle, and while it's it's great that they, you know, would be able to say we made the playoffs. In reality, they're nowhere near being close to contending for. I mean, contending to be competitive in a postseason series. If they were to make the playoffs, they'd get swept in four games. So it's 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 one thing to make the playoffs; it's another to be competitive when you get there, and. They're going to end up missing the playoffs, and I wouldn't be shocked if Kemba were to stay because, like you said, he's very loyal. It's the only only franchise he's ever known, and Charlotte seems, uh, you know, he seems comfortable there and in an important place to him. But um, I, I think if this if this ship sinks over the next month, I would not be surprised if he left. Moving on to to the last thing you wanted to talk about, uh, you wanted to talk a little Western Conference seating, I believe. Yeah. So. I think that the Western Conference playoffs will once again be in the first round way more intriguing than the East just because they just have better teams to make the playoffs. And I think it will be really, really interesting and really important this last month of the season to see this, where teams finish and who gets home court and what the matchups will be. So to give some context, Houston, Oklahoma City, and Portland are all within one game of each other for three, four, five. Utah, LA, Clippers, and the Spurs are all a half game from each other from six through eight. The 
Warriors probably won't be caught. They're going to get the one seed. But it's, let's just start with the bottom. You don't want to play the Warriors. It's all that with the half game. So that could be a huge difference between what teams do moving forward. If you think of the Clippers as a free agent destination, if they get the seven seed where they are right now and can upset Denver and make it to the second round, they're way more appealing to a guy like Kawhi Leonard or Kevin Durant because this is what they were able to do with only half a season of an all-star in Tobias Harris. What could they do with a full season of a superstar-level player? And then Utah is the team I think no one wants to play in the first round. Utah is the team that I think could potentially get up there into that three seed, which would be huge because you'd be on the opposite side of the bracket from Golden State. So after their first round series, it'd definitely be a tough series because like you said, the Western Conference is absolutely loaded. But if, if they get the three seed, I would assume that they'd probably be the favorites to get to the Western Conference Finals. Because in that scenario, perhaps Houston and OKC are the 4-5 matchup. And so they'd be in the other bracket along with Golden State. But I, I think Utah is a team. They just play a style of basketball that once the postseason hits and the game slows down, Rudy Gobert is a monster to score over. An absolute monster. Going back to what you said before with the Clippers, a lot of people were speculating that maybe they should miss the playoffs because, you know, it's it's better for them to keep their, their pick because if they make the playoffs, I believe it goes to Boston, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. So by making the playoffs, they might not have their pick, but they get Shea Gilgis-Alexander and some of these other guys valuable playoff experience. I also don't think it's out of the realm of possibilities if they were to finish seven and match up with Denver. I could see a situation where they beat Denver in a seven-game series. So I don't think that's out of the picture. And then also, by making the postseason, they become a more attractive destination for a Kawhi Leonard or another superstar in the sense that, guys, we just made the playoffs and as a seven seed and took, say, Denver. We Say they lose to them in six games. We took Denver to six games with no superstar. If we can sign one or maybe even two, free up some space, all of a sudden, the Clippers could present themselves as a potential finals dark horse. Yeah, and, and what you were talking about, too, about losing their, their pick, this, this year's draft is supposedly not very deep, and losing maybe the 17th or 18th pick in this year's draft, maybe that's just not that big a deal to these, to these teams who know a lot more about these prospects than we do. That's a really good point. And then at the top of the West, battling for those three, four, five along with Utah, is Houston, Oklahoma City, and Portland. And if you, that 4-5 matchup is going to be brutal for whoever gets there. If it's Oklahoma City versus Portland, if the season ended today, that is a going to be a bloodbath of a first-round series. I've got, I've got something for you. So right now, I think it, it'd be safe to say that the teams that are in contention for the four five would rather drop to six to just avoid golden state until the conference finals. Would you agree? Uh huh. Okay. But listen to this. So we know James Harden has run out of gas in the postseason recently. We saw it against San Antonio two years ago in a game that I cannot erase from my memory. The dude just did not even show up in an elimination game. And I think that that is 
a massive blemish on his resume. But for sure. if, if you're the Rockets, would you almost rather face Golden State in the second round when James Harden is fresher and you know more apt to play at his best than in the in the conference finals where potentially you know you're you're around further but perhaps James Harden is more fatigued at that point or would you rather just you know take your chances get in the opposite side of the bracket and just hope Golden State either gets injured or or someone on their team gets injured or potentially they lose but I don't see that happening I think that the Rockets are the only team who, in the Western Conference, who truly doesn't care when they play the Warriors, because I think they're the best matchup. And I think that there's no one is afraid of the Warriors anymore, but I think that the Rockets are the best matchup to beat the Warriors in a seven-game series. So for them, I think they're... I mean, it's the Chris Paul injury factors there for them, too. Like, not just Harden wearing down, but hey, if we play them earlier, maybe Chris Paul won't it's just less games Chris Paul has to play. That's a, that's a good point. Let, let's take a break here, and then we'll um, we can wrap up with a little LeBron talk, and then a Zion Williamson conspiracy theory. Sounds good. All right, David. So Wednesday night, LeBron. Passed Michael Jordan for fourth all time on the NBA's scoring list. The only guys ahead of him right now are Kobe, Carl Malone, and Kareem Abdul Jabbar. Kind of just what did you make of it, and do you think it has any significance in the the greatest of all time debate? I thought it was just a really cool moment because. That's just so many points. To score 32,000 points is just incredible. And I know LeBron has played 16 seasons. And even though Jordan played a similar amount of seasons, it was the ages that they were. You know, Jordan at the end of his career was, was older than LeBron. You could say LeBron's on his prime, whatever. That is still just an incredible amount of points for one dude to score in his career. And the most amazing thing about it is that it's not just that everyone would kind of expected it to to happen, but everyone was like, yeah, this dude's still in his prime. He might legitimately break Kareem's record in two seasons. Yeah. Like, that's the most amazing thing to me about it was that it was less about Jordan's record being passed because I think it was a bigger deal that, that Kobe passed him. Um. But that LeBron could, because LeBron will pass Kobe. And it's that, can LeBron really, obviously stays healthy. LeBron has a real shot at getting to number one. And if he gets to number one, I think that that's what you're talking about in the, in the grace of all time discussion. If LeBron's one, that's a big piece. That's a big chip in, the, in his camp for, for, the, for calling him the greatest, if, is if he's truly number one. Because if he ends three or two it's it's not as big a deal as being number one you know yeah let me so first of all i don't think him passing jordan changes any opinions i think if you thought michael jordan was better than lebron james before you still think michael jordan's better than lebron james if you thought lebron was better this just strengthened your argument but i just want to so i broke out the calculator and just did a little bit of math and we're going to be we're going to be conservative here so right now lebron is six thousand points behind kareem so let's assume relative health, 
and he plays 65 games a year over the next four years and averages 23 points per game. If he can sustain that, he will pass Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He's a career he's a career 27.2 points per game scorer. If he scores 23 points a game and plays 65 games a year over the next 4 seasons, he will surpass Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And I think that would be an impressive accomplishment, but I think we can both agree that LeBron's best attribute is his passing and playmaking. Yep. And as it currently stands right now, he's 1700 assists behind Steve Nash for third all-time. So let's assume the same relative health. If he plays 65 games a year for the next four seasons and averages 6.5 assists per game, he will stand alone at third all-time in assists in NBA history. So, so just to recap, if LeBron plays 65 games a year for the next four seasons and averages 23 points and 6.5 assists per game, he's going to retire as the number one all-time scorer in NBA history and the third most prolific passer of all time. That, that does not even compute. That is incredible. Yeah, I mean, if, if he really gets number one scoring, as you're saying, in the, in, in the top three for assists, it's really, really hard to not say that he's the best player because no one's going to get to John Stockton's 15,000 assists. That's just absurd. And maybe you, you could if with LeBron being point guard and just guys, the scoring is just way up in the NBA now that you could just say there's more made shots. But let me ask you a question. It seems like in this the greatest of all time discussion, it, the postseason matters so much that do these regular season career records really mean that much in this debate? Because it seems like no matter what, it's going to be Jordan went six and zero, and LeBron is three and six right now in the finals. And that just seems like something that like. In the way people talk about the greatest of all times in every sport, the how you do in the not even just in the playoffs but in the championship round is most important. The thing that drives me nuts, and I, there's no doubt about it, six rings is better than three. But what about all the times that Jordan didn't make the finals? We're we're almost saying it's it's better to lose before the finals than to advance further and lose in the finals. So a lot of, like when when Brady was at four rings. And Joe, Joe Montana was four, is four and zero in Super Bowls, and Brady was four and three or whatever he was. Th- th- there would be a, a discussion as to which was more impressive: is it more impressive being undefeated in the Super Bowl, or is it more impressive making seven Super Bowls as opposed to four? And I think there is something to be said about being undefeated in on the biggest stage, but not at the expense of losing earlier. But I, I just. I don't think Jordan being passed by LeBron in scoring really was going to change anyone's mind. No, and that's like the part that seems so weird about it is because it's such a major accomplishment, but it doesn't change the way people think about these players. Like it felt like when Kobe passed Jordan, it was a big deal for the way that people thought about Kobe. And it just doesn't feel like this has changed any people's minds in the for LeBron's career because I think we almost almost expected it to happen. Yeah, I agree. It's It's been a long time coming. I, I want to throw this Zion thought at you. 
Yep. So I've kind of had this persistent thought and I'm starting to believe it more and more as the days pass and the season kind of comes to a conclusion because selection Sunday is March 17th, St. Patrick's Day. Oh yeah. Week from tomorrow. So we all saw Zion had his shoe rupture hurt around the world in Cameron indoor against Carolina. He broke through his Paul George pair of Nikes and it was a scary moment. But looking at the replay, I, I don't really think it looked all too serious. It looked like more of a tweak and more of a precautionary measure to hold him out. But he's now missed five games. And we discussed the potential of shutting Zion down a few weeks ago. And we both kind of agreed that we thought he would and should just continue to play. But I think Zion's already shut it down. And let me present my case, all right? Uh So he reportedly suffers an insignificant knee injury. That's quoted by Krzyzewski, an insignificant knee injury. And then Krzyzewski said yesterday, quote, he hasn't really practiced yet. All right, so my antenna is now raised. Krzyzewski says he suffers an insignificant knee injury. This is the day of the injury that he suffered against Carolina. And then three weeks later, he still hasn't really practiced. And tonight they play North Carolina in the biggest game of the season, which could potentially clinch a share of the ACC title. And when Coach K announced that Zion would not be playing, he said, we expect him back for the ACC tournament. So Mike Krzyzewski, you're telling me that Zion is going to go play three days in a row after not even being able to practice for three weeks. So I expect Zion to miss the ACC tournament as well. Mm -hmm. And I think Coach K is going to say something along the lines of like, we expect him back for the NCAAs. He's, you know, he's, he's revving it up and he's getting ready to go back at it. But he doesn't believe that and he's going to just be kind of kicking the can down the road. And people might ask, why, why is he doing this? What is his reasoning? If, if Zion really did shut it down, why not just come out and say Zion Williamson is going to remain with the team for the rest of the season, but he will not wear a Duke uniform again? I think there's two reasons. The first one is to prevent the media backlash because, you know, if Zion, if that were to be the case, people would come out hammering Zion with these archaic takes saying he's quitting on his team you know, things of that nature. And then secondly, and kind of a selfish motive for Coach K and Duke, they're almost conning the selection committee and preserving their seating. So by presenting the illusion that Zion Williamson might return, there's a higher likelihood that Duke will potentially receive a one seed in the NCAA tournament, regardless of what occurs against Carolina and then in the ACC tournament. So I think... Looking at all the evidence, I'm starting to believe more and more that Zion's already shut it down. The whole Duke basketball family knows that, and they're just kind of keeping it keeping it under wraps for now. So tell me I'm wrong. Yeah, you're you're wrong. <laughs> um, my take from this is that um, it's just way easier in the media when discussing an injury. If you just say day to day, like, hey, we're just taking it day to day. 
that way it's like that way it's like you don't put an artificial time frame on something that is more serious because I think Kay is thinking about Zion's pro potential as I don't want to come out and say, you know, he has a grade two sprain, for example, it's a four week injury and that somehow affects his future way people talk about his NBA potential. By calling it day to day, it's just an easy way to save Zion. Uh, just an, and just an easy way to talk about it in, in the media is, hey, you know, we're taking it day by day and we're going to see how he feels. So day to day means just a lot of things in that he could be day to day as, you know, day to day as today he decided to use ice instead of heat. And his day to day is that today he got to ride on the bike. And today he was on the treadmill and then, you know, day to day said, Oh, and day to day we'll see if he can return to to the court. I think it was just a more serious injury. Um, just by the fact that how he was immediately ruled out for the game when he got hurt. And I think they're just doing day to day because that's just the easiest thing for Duke to do to protect Zion and just to make it to, you know, it's threatening to other teams on the scatter report. UNC definitely went this whole week saying, hey, Zion's playing, Zion's playing, he'll be back. You have to scout for Zion the whole week, and they play differently without Zion. I guess time will tell who's right and who's wrong, but I bet you when we come on this podcast heading into the NCAA tournament, I think we're still going to be talking, is Zion going to play? And at that point, I, I think the answer is a definitive no. Notice how no one is really talking about Zion now. When so Duke's handling this perfectly, by the way. Like, I'm not criticizing the way they're handling it, but if, if they were to come out and say Zion is not playing, it would be all over ESPN. You could make the argument right now that Zion, in terms of the basketball sphere, Zion Williamson is top three most famous, not college basketball players, basketball players, period. So the way they're handling this, no one's really talking about Zion, which is exactly how they want it. But... I think, I mean, I personally think he's played his last game at Duke, and I don't really fault him for it, but I guess time will tell. I think you're wrong on, wrong on that. I, I think he's going to be back for the ACC tournament, and just at the latest, he'll be back for the NCAA tournament. Because, so the NCAA tournament starts next in two Thursdays, right? They have two Thursdays basically get him ready, two and a half weeks. That'll put it, I think he got hurt. Two, three weeks ago, that, that'll put it at five total weeks. I think he'll be back and he'll be playing. And my question for you is, does it even matter if he doesn't practice and just goes out of play? Like, he's so good and so dominant that does it even matter that he doesn't have that much practice time? No, I don't think it really matters, to be honest. He's so much more athletic. And assuming he he hasn't really been able to practice, Coach K said, but assuming he's been able to work out and stay in shape, keep his cardio up, and isn't just super rusty – He's going to go out there and be the best player on the court. Easily. And especially in that first weekend you're, when you're playing a 16 seed, he'll use that game to get back in shape. And then that second round, they'll, they'll be on upset alert. But he's so good that the team probably doesn't have anyone at who, who, who could guard him. I don't know how rusty you have to be when you just dunk everything. <laughs> I think we can call it quits for today. That'll conclude episode eight of the Double Double. As we said earlier, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. And if you want, you can leave us an email. We, we haven't really gotten any emails. Might have to rethink that strategy, David. I don't know. But if you're, if you're so inclined to send an email, you can send it to 
doubledouble402 at gmail.com. And we'll catch you next time on the Double Double.